Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 284. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Knowledge is power, but ignorance is bliss. How's a guy supposed to know whether to be stupid or not? We hope this week's show sheds a little enlightenment on the issue, but just a little bit. Let's start things off with the Drabble. Drabbles are stories that are exactly 100 words, and they're the name of the game around here. Try writing one yourself and send it in to submissions at drabblecast.org, or post it in the prolific Drabble section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. This week's Drabble is called The First Wish by Drabblecast forum member and winner of last year's People's Choice Award for Best Drabble, Phineas QB. Here goes. The impatient genie glared. Give me a minute, said Roger, who was genre savvy enough to know that wishes often backfired. Irresistible to women? He'd seen that go wrong in the stories. Eternal life? He'd be alive when the sun burned out and beyond. Unbelievable wealth? Tempting, but even Roger knew that money doesn't buy happiness. Happiness. Aha! I wish to be always happy. Easy enough, said the genie, and he conked Roger on the melon with his bottle. Roger now sits drooling in his chair at the Shady Acres rest home, blissfully unaware that he's got two more wishes coming. That leads us to this week's feature story, Turning Point, by Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson is remembered as one of the most imaginative and hugely prolific science fiction writers of the golden age of the genre, writing in the generation that immediately followed the likes of Heinlein and Asimov. He won over 30 major science fiction awards, including seven Hugos and three Nebulas, and throughout the decades cranked out over 70 published novels and 100 published short stories. A firm believer that space exploration is an existential need tied inextricably with human freedom, his work often examines the social, moral, and political gray areas that pop up when explorers and pioneers advance out into some frontier. This story is a fine example of that. So without further ado, we bring you Turning Point by Paul Anderson. Please, mister, could I have a cracker for my untitherium? Not exactly the words you would expect at an instant when history changes course 
and the universe can never again be what it was. The die is cast, in this sign conquer. It is not fit that you should sit here any longer. We hold these truths to be self-evident. The Italian navigator has landed in the new world. Dear God, the thing works. No man with any imagination can recall those or others like them and not have a coldness run along his spine. But as for what little Mierna first said to us on that island half a thousand light years from home. The star is catalogued AGC 425683, a K2 dwarf in Cassiopeia. Our ship was making a standard preliminary survey of that region and had come upon mystery enough. How easily Earthsiders forget that every planet is a complete world but nothing extraordinary in this fantastic cosmos. The traders had noted places that seemed worth further investigation, so had the Federals. The lists were not quite identical. After a year, Vessel and men were equally jaded. We needed a set-down to spend a few weeks refitting and recuperating before the long swing homeward. There is an art to finding such a spot. You visit whatever nearby suns look suitable. If you come upon a planet whose gross physical characteristics are terrestroid, you check the biological details very, very carefully. But since the operation is largely automated, it goes pretty fast. And then you make contact with the autochthons, if any. Primitives are preferred. That's not because of military danger, as some think. The Federals insist that the natives have no objection to strangers camping on their land, while the traders don't see how anyone, civilized or not, that hasn't discovered atomic energy can be a menace. It's only that primitives are less apt to ask complicated questions and otherwise make a nuisance of themselves. Spacemen rejoice that worlds with machine civilizations are rare. Well, Joril looked ideal. The second planet of that sun, with more water than Earth, it offered a mild climate everywhere. The biochemistry was so like our own that we could eat native foods, and there didn't seem to be any germs that UX2 couldn't handle. Seas, forests, meadows made us feel right at home, yet the countless differences from Earth lent a fairyland glamour. The indigenous were savages, that is, they depended on hunting, fishing, and gathering for their food supply. So we assumed there were thousands of little cultures, and picked the one that appeared most advanced. Not that aerial observation indicated much difference. Those people lived in neat, exquisitely decorated villages along the western seaboard of the largest continent, with woods and hills behind them. Contact went smoothly. Our semanticians had a good deal of trouble with the language, but the villagers started picking up English right away. Their hospitality was lavish whenever we called on them, but they stayed out of our camp except for the conducted tours we gave and other such invitations. With one vast, happy sigh, we settled down. But from the first, there were certain disturbing symptoms. Granted, they had human-like throats and palates, but we hadn't expected the autochthons to speak flawless English within a couple of weeks. Every one of them. Obviously, they could have learned still faster if we'd taught them systematically. 
We followed the usual practice and christened the planet Joril after what we thought was the local word for Earth, and then found that Joril meant Earth capitalized, and that the people had an excellent heliocentric astronomy. Though they were too polite to press themselves on us, they weren't merely accepting us as something inexplicable. Curiosity was a fire in them, and given half a chance, they did ask the most complicated questions. Once the initial rush of establishing ourselves was over and we had time to think, it became plain that we'd stumbled on something worth much further study. First, we needed to check on some other areas and make sure this Danikar culture wasn't a freak. After all, the Neolithic Mayas had been good astronomers. The pharaoh agricultural Greeks had developed a high and sophisticated philosophy. Looking over the maps we'd made from orbit, Captain Barlow chose a large island about 700 kilometers due west. A grav boat was outfitted, and five men went aboard. Pilot Jacques Lejeune, engineer me, Federal Militechnic representative Commander Ernest Baldinger, Space Force of the Solar Peace Authority, Federal Civil Government representative Walter Vaughn, Trader Agent Don Harasthi. He and Vaughn were the principals, but the rest of us were skilled in multiple jobs of planet topography. You have to be on a foreign world months from your home or help. We made the aerial crossing soon after sunrise, so we'd have a full 18 hours of daylight. I remember how beautiful the ocean looked below us, like one great bowl of metal, silver where the sun struck, cobalt and green copper beyond. Then the island came over the world's edge, darkly forested, crimson splashed by stands of gigantic red blossoms. Lejeune picked out an open spot in the woods, about two kilometers from a village that stood on a wide bay, and landed us with a whoop and a holler. He's a fireball pilot. Well, Harasthi rose to his sheer two meters and stretched till his joints cracked. He was burly to match that height, and his hook-nosed face carried the marks of old battles. Most traders are tough, pragmatic, extroverts. They have to be, just as federal civils have to be the opposite. It makes for conflict sometimes. Let's hike. Not so fast, Vaughn said, a thin young man with an intense gaze. That tribe has never seen or heard of our kind. If they noticed us land, they may be in a panic. So we go jolly them out of it, Harasthi shrugged. Our whole party? Are you serious? Commander Baldinger asked. He reflected a bit. Yes, I suppose you are, but I'm responsible now. Lejeune and Cathcart, stand by here. We others will proceed to the village. Just like that? Vaughn protested. You know a better way? Harasthi answered. As a matter of fact, but nobody listened. The government operates on some elaborate theories, and Vaughn was still too new in survey to understand how often theory has to give way. We were impatient to go outside, and I regretted not being sent along to town. Of course, someone had to stay, ready to pull out our emissaries if serious trouble developed. We emerged into long grass and a breeze that smelled of nothing so much as cinnamon. 
Trees rustled overhead against a deep blue sky. The reddish sunlight spilled across purple wildflowers and bronze-colored insect wings. I drew a savoring breath before going around with Lejeune to make sure our landing gear was properly set. We were all lightly clad. Baldinger had a blast rifle and harassed the a radio comm big enough to contact Danikar, but both seemed ludicrously inappropriate. I envy the Jerillians, I remarked. In a way, Lejeune said, though perhaps their environment is too good. What stimulus have they to advance further? Why should they want to? They don't, consciously, but every intelligent race is descended from animals that once had a hard struggle to survive, so hard they were forced to evolve brains. There's an instinct for adventure, even in the gentlest herbivores, and sooner or later it must find expression. Holy jumpin' Jesus! Harasthi's yell brought Lejeune and me bounding back to that side of the ship. For a moment my reason wobbled, then I decided the sight wasn't really so strange. Here... A girl was emerging from the woods. She was about the equivalent of a terrestrial five-year-old, I estimated. Less than a meter tall, the Jerillians averaged more short and slender than we. She had the big head of her species to make her look still more elfin. Long, blondish hair, round ears, delicate features that were quite humanoid, except for the high forehead and huge violet eyes. Her brown-skinned body was clad only in a white loincloth. One four-fingered hand waved cheerily at us. The other carried a leash. And at the opposite end of that leash was a grasshopper the size of a hippopotamus. No, not a grasshopper, I saw as she danced towards us. The head looked similar, but the four walking legs were short and stout, and several others mere boneless appendages. The gaudy hide was skin, not chitin. I saw that the creature breathed with lungs, too. Nonetheless, it was a startling monster, and it drooled. Insular genus, Vaughn said. Undoubtedly harmless, or she wouldn't. But a child coming so casually. Baldinger grinned and lowered his rifle. What the hell, he said. To a kid, everything's equally wonderful. This is a break for our side. She'll give us a good recommendation to her elders. The little girl, damn it, I will call her that, walked to within a meter of Harathsthi, turned those big eyes up and up till they met his piratical face, and trilled with an irresistible smile. Please, mister, could I have a cracker for my untitherium? I don't quite remember the next few minutes. They were confused. Eventually we found ourselves, the whole five, walking down a sun-speckled woodland path. The girl skipped beside us, chattering like a xylophone. The monster lumbered behind, chewing messily on what we had given it. When the light struck those compound eyes, I thought of a jeweled chest. My name is Mierna, the girl said, and my father makes things out of wood. I don't know what that's called in English. Please tell me. Oh, carpentry. Thank you. You're a nice man. My father thinks a lot. My mother makes songs. They're very pretty songs. She sent me out to get some sweet grass for a borning couch because her assistant wife is going to be born a baby soon. But when I saw you come down just the way Penguil told, I knew I would say hello instead and take you to Teori. That's our village. We have 25 houses and sheds and a thinking hall that's bigger than the one in Ryu. 
Penguil said crackers are awfully tasty. Could I have one too? Harasthi obliged in a numb fashion. Vaughn shook himself and fairly snapped. How do you know our language? Why, everybody does in Teori, since Penguil came and taught us. That was three days ago. We've been hoping and hoping you would come. They'll be so jealous in Ryu, but we'll let them visit if they ask us nicely. Penguil, a Danakarian name, all right. But they never heard of this island till I showed them our map, and they couldn't cross the ocean in those dugouts of theirs. It's against the prevailing winds. And square sails. Oh, Penguil's boat can sail right into the wind, Mierna laughed. I saw him myself. He took everybody for rides. And now my father's making a boat like that, too, only better. Why did Penguil come here? Vaughn asked. To see what there was. He's from a place called Folat. They have such funny names in Danakar. And they dress funny, too, don't they, mister? Folat. Yeah, I remember. A community a ways north of our camp, Baldinger said. But savages don't strike off into an unknown ocean for... for curiosity, I stammered. Yeah, these do, Harasthi grunted. I could almost see the relays clicking in his blocky head. There were tremendous commercial possibilities here, foods and textiles, and especially the dazzling artwork in exchange. No, Vaughn exclaimed. I know what you're thinking, traitor Harasthi, and you are not going to bring machines here. The big man bridled. Says who? Says me, by virtue of the authority vested in me, and I'm sure the council will confirm my decision. In that soft air, Vaughn was sweating. We don't dare. What's a council? Mierna asked. A shade of trouble crossed her face. She edged close to the bulk of her animal. In spite of everything, I had to pat her head and murmur, Nothing you need to worry about, sweetheart. To get her mind and my own off vague fears, I said. So, why do you call this fellow an Untatherium? That can't be his real name. Oh, no. She forgot her worries at once. He's a Yao, and his real name is, well, it means big feet, buggy eyes, top man underneath and over. That's what I named him. He's mine, and he's lovely. She tugged at an antenna. The monster actually purred. But Penguil told us about something called an oont you have at your home that's hairy and scary and carries things that drool like a yow, so I thought that would be a nice English name, isn't it? Very, I said weakly. What is this oont business? Vaughn demanded. Harasthi ran a hand through his hair. Well, he said, you know I like Kipling, and I read some of his poems to some natives at a party one night. That one about the oont, the camel. Yeah, I guess that must have been among them. They sure enjoyed Kipling. And had the poem letter perfect after one hearing, and passed it unchanged up and down the coast, and now it's crossed the sea and taken hold? Vaughn choked. Who explained that therium is a root meaning of mammal? I asked. Nobody knew, but doubtless one of our naturalists had casually mentioned it, so five-year-old Mierna had gotten the term from a wandering sailor and applied it with absolute correctness. Never mind feelers and insectoidal eyes, the yow was a true mammal. 
After a while, we emerged in a clear strip fronting on the bay. Against its glitter stood the village, peak-roofed houses of wood and thatch, a different style from Danikar's, but every bit as pleasant and well-kept. Outrigger canoes were drawn up on the beach where fishnets hung to dry. Anchored some way beyond was another boat. The curved, gaily painted hull, twin steering oars, mat sails, and leather tackle were like nothing on our poor, over-mechanized earth. But she was sloop-rigged, and evidently a deep keel made it impossible to run her ashore, Baldinger said in an uneven voice. Penguil went ahead and invented tacking. That's an efficient design. He could cross the water in a week or less. He invented navigation, too, Lejeune pointed out. The villagers, who had not seen us descend, now dropped their occupations, cooking, cleaning, weaving, potting, the numberless jobs of the primitive, to come on the run. All were dressed as simply as Mierna. Despite large heads, which were not grotesquely big, odd hands and ears, slightly different body proportions, the women were good to look on. Too good after a year's celibacy. The beardless, long-haired men were likewise handsome, and both sexes were graceful as cats. They didn't shout or crowd. Only an exuberant horn sounded down on the beach. Mierna ran to a grizzled male, seized him by the hand, and tugged him forward. This is my father, she crowed. Isn't he wonderful? And he thinks a lot. The name he's using right now? That's Serato. I liked his last name better. One wearies of the same word, Serato laughed. Welcome, Earth folk. You do us great... Lula... Pardon, I lack the term. You raise us high by this visit. His handshake, Penguil must have told him about that custom, was hard, and his eyes met ours respectfully, but unawed. The Danikarian communities turned what little government they needed over to specialists, chosen on the basis of some tests we hadn't yet comprehended. But these people didn't seem to draw even that much class distinction. We were introduced to everybody by occupation. Hunter, fisher, musician, prophet. I think that's what Nanolo means. And so on. There was the same absence of taboo here as we'd noticed in Danikar, but an equally elaborate code of manners, which they realized we could not be expected to observe. Penguil, a strongly built youth in the tunic of his own culture, greeted us. It was no coincidence that he'd arrived at the same spot as we. Teori lay almost exactly west of his home area, and had the best anchorage on these shores. He was bursting with desire to show off his boat. I obliged him, swimming out and climbing aboard. A fine job, I said with entire honesty. I have a suggestion, though. For sailing along coasts, you don't need a fixed keel. I described a centerboard. Then you can ground her. Yes, Serato thought of that after he'd seen my work. He has started one of such pattern already. He wants to do away with the steering oars also, and, and have a flat piece of wood turn at the back end. Is that right? Yes, I said after a strangled moment. It seemed so to me, Penguil smiled. The push of water can be split into two parts, like the push of air. Your Mr. Ishihara told me about splitting and rejoining forces. That was what gave me the idea for a boat like this. We swam back and put our clothes on again. The village was a bustle, preparing a feast for us. Penguil joined them. 
I stayed behind, walking the beach, too restless to sit, staring out across the waters and breathing an ocean smell that was almost like Earth's. I thought strange thoughts. They were broken off by Mierna. She skipped towards me, dragging a small wagon. Hello, Mr. Cathcart, she cried. I have to gather seaweed for flavor. Do you want to help me? Sure, I said. She made a face. I'm glad to be here. Father and Kawaya and a lot of others, they're asking Mr. Lejeune about mathematics. I'm not sure. I'm not old enough to like functions. I'd like to hear Mr. Horathy tell about Earth, though. But he's talking alone in a house with his friends. Will you tell me about Earth? Can I go there someday? I mumbled something. She began to bundle leafy strands that had washed ashore. I didn't used to like this job, she said. I had to go back and forth so many times. They wouldn't let me use my untotherium because he gets buckety when his feet are wet. I told them I could make him shoes, but they said no. Now it's fun anyway, with this, this, what do you call it? A wagon. You haven't had such a thing before. No, never. Just drags with runners. Penguil told us about wheels. He saw the earth folk use them. Carpenter Juana started putting wheels on the drags right away. We only have a few so far. I looked at the device, carved in wood and bone, a frieze of processional figures around the sides. The wheels weren't simply attached to axles. With permission, I took the cover off one and saw a ring of hard-shelled spherical nuts. As far as I knew, nobody had explained ball bearings to Penguil. I've been thinking and thinking, Mierna said. If we made a great big wagon, then an untotherium could pull it, couldn't he? Only we have to have a good way for tying the untotherium on so he doesn't get hurt, and you can guide him. I've thinked, thought, of a real nice way. She stooped and then drew lines in the sand. The harness ought to work. With a full load, we went back among the houses. I lost myself in admiration of the carved pillars and panels. Serato emerged from Lejeune's discussion of group theory. The natives had already developed that, so the talk was a mere comparison of approaches to show me his obsidian-edged tools. He said the coast dwellers traded inland for the material and spoke of getting steel from us. Or might we be so incredibly kind to explain how metal was taken from the earth? The banquet, music, dances, pantomimes, conversation, all was as gorgeous as expected, or more so. I trust the happy pills we humans took kept us from making too grim an impression. But we disappointed our hosts by declining an offer to spend the night. They guided us back by torch glow, singing the whole distance on a twelve-tone scale with some of the damnedest harmony I've ever come across. Mierna was at the tail of the parade. She stood a long time in the coppery light of the single great moon, waving to us. Baldinger set out glasses and a bottle of Irish. Okay, he said. These pills have worn off by now, but we need an equivalent. Oh, yeah. Harassthi grabbed the bottle. I wonder what their wine will be like when they invent that, Lejeune mused. Be still. Vaughn said, they aren't going to. He sat, shivering with tension, under the cold fluoroluminescence in that bleak little cabin. What the devil do you mean? Harassly demanded at last. If they can make wine half as well as they do everything else, it'll go for ten credits a liter on Earth. 
Don't you understand? Vaughn cried. We can't deal with them. We have to get off this planet and... Oh, God, why did we ever have to find the damn thing? He groped for a glass. Well, I sighed. We always knew, those of us who bothered to think about the question, that someday we were bound to meet a race like this. Man, what is man that thou art mindful of him? This is probably an older star than Sol, Baldinger nodded. Less massive, so it stays longer in the main sequence. Uh, there needn't be much difference in planetary age, I said. A million years, half a million years. Whatever the figure is, hell, that doesn't mean a thing in astronomy or geology. In the development of an intelligent race, though. But they're savages, Harasthi protested. Most of the races we've found are, I reminded him. Man was, too, for most of his existence. Civilization is a freak. It doesn't come natural. Started on Earth, I'm told, because the Middle East dried out as the glaciers receded, and something had to be done for a living when the game got scarce. And scientific, machine civilization, that's an even more unusual accident. Why should the Jurillians have gone beyond an upper Paleolithic technology? They never needed to. Why did they have the brains they do if they're in the Stone Age? Harasthi argued. Why did we, in our own Stone Age, I countered. It wasn't necessary for survival. Java man, Peking man, and all the low-browed rest, they'd been doing all right. But evidently evolution, intraspecies, competition, sexual selection, whatever increases intelligence in the first place, continues to force it upward. If some new factor like machinery doesn't interfere... A bright Jurillian has more prestige, rises higher in life, gets more mates and children, and so it goes. But this is an easy environment, at least in the present geological epoch. The natives don't even seem to have wars, which would stimulate technology. Thus far, they've had little occasion to use those tremendous minds for anything but art, philosophy, and occasional social experimentation. What is their average IQ? Lejeune whispered. Meaningless, Vaughn said dully. Beyond 180 or so, the scale breaks down. How can you measure an intelligence so much greater than your own? There was a stillness in the night around us. Yes, Baldinger ruminated. I always realized that our betters must exist somewhere. Didn't expect we'd run into them in my own lifetime, though. Not in this microscopic sliver of the galaxy we've explored. And, well, I always imagined the elders having machines, science, and space travel. They will, I said. If we go away, Lejeune began. Too late, I said. We've already given them this shiny new toy, science. They'll come looking for us in a couple hundred years, at most. Harasthi's fist crashed on the table. Why leave? What the hell are you scared of? I doubt the population of this whole planet is 10 million. There are 15 billion humans in the solar system and the colonies. So a Jurillion can outthink me. So what? Plenty of guys can do that already, and it don't bother me as long as we can do business. Baldinger shook his head. His face might have been cast in iron. Matters aren't that simple. The question is, what race is going to dominate this arm of the galaxy? Is it so horrible that the Jurillians do? Lejeune asked softly. Perhaps not. They seem pretty decent, but... Baldinger straightened in his chair. 
I'm not going to be anybody's domestic animal. I want my planet to decide her own destiny. That was the unalterable fact. The hypothetical superbeings had always seemed comfortably far off. We hadn't encountered them or they us. Therefore, they couldn't live anywhere near us. Therefore, they probably would never interfere in the affairs of this remote galactic fringe where we dwell. But a planet only months distant from Earth, a species whose average member was a genius and whose geniuses were not understandable by us, bursting from their world, swarming through space, vigorous, eager, jumping in a decade to accomplishments that would take us a century, if we ever succeeded. How could they help but destroy our painfully built civilization? We'd scrap it ourselves as the primitives of our old days had scrapped their own rich cultures in the overwhelming face of Western society. Our sons would laugh at our shoddy triumphs, go forth to join the high Drillian adventure, and come back spirit broken by failure to build some feeble imitation of an alien way of life and fester in hopelessness. And so would every other thinking species, unless the Jerillians were merciful enough to leave them alone, which the Jerillians probably would be. But who wants that kind of mercy? I looked upon horror. Only Vaughn had the courage to voice the thing. There are planets under technological blockade, you know, cultures too dangerous to allow modern weapons, let alone spaceships. Joril can be interdicted. They'll invent the stuff for themselves, now they've gotten the idea, Baldinger said. Vaughn's mouth twitched downward. Not if the only two regions that have seen us are destroyed. Good God, Harasthi leapt to his feet. Sit down, Baldinger rapped. Harasthi spoke an obscenity. His face was ablaze. The rest of us sat in a chill sweat. You called me unscrupulous. The traitor snarled. Take that suggestion back to the hell it came from, Vaughn, or I'll kick out your brains. I thought of nuclear fire vomiting skyward and a wisp of gas that had been Mierna, and said, No. The alternative, Vaughn said, staring at the bulkhead across from him, is to do nothing until the sterilization of the entire planet has become necessary. Lejeune shook his head in anguish. Wrong, wrong. There can be too great a price for survival. But for our children's survival? Their liberty? Their pride? And what sort of pride can they take in themselves once they know the truth? Harasthi interrupted. He reached down, grabbed Vaughn's shirt front, and hauled the man up by sheer strength. His broken features glared three centimeters from the Federals. I'll tell you what we're gonna do, he said. We're going to trade and teach and xenologize and fraternize the same as with any other people whose salt we've eaten. And we'll take our chances like men. If you strike him, I'll brig you and prefer charges at home. Let him go, I said. Harasthi opened his grasp. Vaughn tumbled to the deck. Harasthi sat down, buried his head in his hands, and struggled not to sob. Baldinger refilled our glasses. Well, gentlemen, he said, it looks like an impasse. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And I lay odds no Jerillian talks in such tired cliches. They could give us so much, 
Lejeune pleaded. Give! Vaughn climbed erect and stood trembling before us. That's precisely the trouble. They'd give it, if they could, even. It wouldn't be ours. We probably couldn't understand their work or use it. It wouldn't be ours, I say. It wouldn't be ours. Haratsthi stiffened. He sat like stone for an entire minute before he raised his face and whooped aloud. Why not? Blessed be whiskey. I actually slept a few hours before dawn, but the light stealing in through the ports woke me and I couldn't get back to sleep. At last I rose, took the drop shaft down, and went outside. The land lay still. Stars were paling, but the east held as yet only a rush of readiness. Through the cool air I heard the first bird flutings from the dark forest mass around me. I kicked off my shoes and went barefoot in wet grass. Somehow it was not surprising that Mierna should come at that moment, leading her untatherium. She let go of the leash and ran to me. Hi, Mr. Cathcart. I hoped a lot somebody would be up. I haven't had any breakfast. We'll have to see about that. I swung her in the air till she squealed. And then, maybe, take a little fly around in this boat. Would you like that? <gasps> oh! Her eyes grew round. I set her down. She needed a while longer before she dared ask, Clear to Earth? No, not that far, I'm afraid. Earth is quite a ways off. Maybe someday, please? Oh, someday. I'm quite sure, my dear. And not so terribly long. I'm going to Earth! I'm going to Earth! She hugged the Untatherium. Will you miss me awfully, big feet, buggy eyes, top man underneath and over? Don't drool so sad. Maybe you can come too. Can he come, Mr. Cathcart? Can he? He's a very nice Untatherium. Honest he is. And he does so love crackers. Well, perhaps, perhaps not, I said. But you'll go, if you wish. I promise you. Anybody on this whole planet who wants to will go to Earth, as most of them will. I'm certain our idea will be accepted by the Council. It's the only possible one. If you can't lick em, get em to join you. I rumpled Mierna's hair. In a way, sweetheart, what a dirty trick to play on you. Take you straight from the wilderness to a huge and complicated civilization. Dazzle you with all the tricks and gadgets and ideas we have. Not because we're better, but simply because we've been at it a little longer than you. Scatter your ten million among our fifteen billion. Of course you'll fall for it. You can't help yourselves. When you realize what's happening, you won't be able to stop it. You'll be hooked. I don't think you'll even be able to resent it. You'll be assimilated, Mierna. You'll become an Earth girl. Naturally, you'll grow up to be one of our leaders. You'll contribute tremendous things to our civilization and be rewarded accordingly. But the whole point is, it will be our civilization, Mierna. Mine and yours. I wonder if you'll ever miss the forest, though, and the little houses by the bay, and the boats, and songs, and old, old stories. Yes, and your darling Untatherium, too. 
I know the empty planet will miss you, Mierna. So will I. Come on, I said. Let's go build us that breakfast. they invented the wheel, in the afternoon the sailing ship. Now night was falling and they looked up to the beckoning stars. Well, we hope you enjoyed this week's story. If you did, this is as good as week as any to donate to the Drabblecast. You can find options off our webpage, drabblecast.org. And if you subscribe for an automatic $10 a month subscription, you get access to our new premium content feed, Drabblecast B-Sides. This week on Drabblecast B-Sides, we produced Philip K. Dick's brilliant story, The Eyes Have It. Last week, we brought you a bonus story by Frank Key. You don't want to miss this stuff. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week by Algernon Sidney is Dead. A mugger stops two guys for money. As they both take out cash, one guy hands the other a bill and says, Here's that 20 I owe ya. Good times. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter for these early each week. We're at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Neil Gouge. Check out more of his awesome art at neil-gouge.deviantart.com. Our program is brought to you this week by managing editor Nikki Drayden, submissions editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, he gets buckety when his feet get wet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.